Journey Church, it's a delight to worship God with you today. For the past three weeks, we've been in this four-week run of messages that we call I Go. It's a series, very simply, about learning how to take very simple, intentional steps of faith that helps point people to faith eventually in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to bring this series in for a landing I've been saying this all along, I'm going to keep saying it, I'm deeply indebted to some teaching and some writing of a guy named Bill Hybels, who influenced my work in this message, yes, and also in the course of the whole series. I want to say great job as well to all of you who sent your stories in this week to that my story at journeyweb.net. Bob Schwann and I had a lot of fun reading those and then offering some hopefully constructive feedback on what might help. They were already good stories, become even better for you to use to share your faith with people who are far from God. We talked through that last weekend. And we're going to keep that open for a while longer. So uh, we'll keep it open for another couple of weeks if you want to take advantage of that 100 words or less about your life before Christ and then when you met Christ and then what's been going on since you met Christ and then we'll offer some constructive feedback via email about how you could sharpen up your story for maximum impact, we're calling it. My story at journeyweb.net and we'll do that. Bob Schwann's helping me with those pretty cool. Uh, It just seems wise that we would start with uh, today's big idea, and it goes like this. Uh, God invites each of us to live for the grander vision, recognizing that all people are children of God and are worthy of being redeemed by God himself. Will you bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day and uh, the pregnancy of this day. God, we sense that you're here, and uh, the cool deal about this, God, is that um, it's not like we're starting something up here. We're just simply jumping onto what you've already been doing, and you've been working in our hearts uh, through the week, and literally, God, you've actually been working in our hearts since the moment we were born. And so I pray that there's a cool intersection of your stuff uh, in this time and that it would be uh, powerful, and that we would actually be changed, God, for all this time is really just for naught if we don't go out those doors different than when we came in. So we avail ourselves to you and invite you to do what only you can do, and that's change us to the core of our beings, God. This is your time. We love you. We worship you. We adore you, our king and our maker and our friend, and most importantly, our redeemer, In Jesus' name we pray all of this, and the church said, amen. You know, on about 40 different occasions, Jesus Christ carried out what some have considered to be a very, very peculiar habit. See, he'd just be walking about, traveling about the countryside, and he would bump into people who were utterly in need of some kind of assistance, And then Jesus himself would go so far as to interrupt like the natural laws of the universe. Why? For the purpose of helping these people. And you know the stories. You've read the text. Jesus healed diseases. He caused the blind to see. He caused the deaf to hear. He caused the mute to speak. The paralyzed would like rise and walk at a word or a touch from Jesus, and you kind of go like, well, how did all that happen? Well, the answer to that question, it happened because Jesus Christ very simply did something. He did something. 
And lots of people considered these peculiar habit, this peculiar habit of Jesus to be very, very odd. And there were others, though, who were quite elated by Christ's very powerful displays. One event in particular, though, stands out to many people as being the most odd. And this one didn't, though, have anything to do with healing, but rather focused on providing an enormous catch of fish to a couple of very frustrated fishermen. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 5. The setting is that brothers Simon Peter and Andrew, they're there washing their nets on the shore right next to the Sea of Galilee after what had been an exhausting and futile night of fishing. The night's defeat was emphasized that much more by the next morning's chore of picking the seaweed out of their fishing nets. You just talk, talk about drudgery, picking seaweed out of fishing nets. And as Simon Peter and Andrew were there working on their nets, they noticed this crowd just up the beach a little ways pressing in. Jesus was teaching, and the crowd is like pressing in on him as he was teaching them. And the crowd very obviously appreciated what it was that Jesus was saying because the longer Jesus spoke, the more the crowd grew. I always wonder what that would be like. It's never happened to me. The longer he went, the more the crowd grew, and the more the crowd grew, the more obvious it became that Jesus was going to have to engineer, in the middle of a sermon probably, he was going to have to engineer a solution so that he could continue to be heard and seen in the midst of this most chaotic event. Jesus, he's quick on his feet, right? He knew that if he rode a boat just a little ways out, a few feet out from the shore that he could keep on preaching from like what would have been a floating pulpit, if you will. Now, there would have been a whole flotilla of boats lined up on the shore that day, and from all of those that Jesus had to choose from, Jesus selected Peter's. And without explaining anything to anyone, Jesus very simply steps into the boat, asks Peter to get in and row him out just a bit where he continues his instruction to the growing crowd. And we don't have any idea how long it was exactly that Jesus taught, but he did eventually finish up his message. When he did, the crowd, they went their own way, going about their business. And then it was Jesus and Simon Peter sitting out in this boat just a few feet out from the shore. And Jesus begins to converse with Simon Peter. They probably chatted for a while when suddenly Jesus makes this like bizarre request of Simon Peter. Look at Luke 5, 4 with me, if you would, please. He said to Simon, that's Jesus, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. And you can see Jesus with like this playful glint in his eye, right? And poor Simon Peter, he's more than a little bit skeptical of Jesus' instructions to him. Look at what he says in response to what Jesus says, Luke 5, 5. Master, Simon replied, he recognizes that Jesus is master, and so he acknowledges that. But then he goes on to say, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. And then he very quickly, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Notice, Simon Peter, he only protests slightly. He's very careful to let Jesus know that he and his fishing partners had already been fishing the whole night before. They had caught nothing. They had carefully cleaned their nets. That's what they were doing while Jesus had been preaching. They put them away, ready for the next night's expedition. And you can get a feel here from this text that Peter is feeling just a wee bit, maybe just a wee bit, put out by Jesus, right? Just... Put yourself in Peter's Birkenstocks for just a moment. 
right? I mean, it's really likely that while Simon Peter and his partners had been slaving away all night, catching absolutely nothing, what do you think Jesus was doing? Sleeping, right? He got a full night's sleep the night before, very likely. And then Jesus, who in Simon Peter's opinion had very little actual fishing experience, was giving him, Simon Peter, who was a veteran fisherman, directions on just how to catch fish. I'd have been a little put out by all of that. Maybe you would have too. But something inside of Simon Peter nudges him to like obscure too many of his doubts and his offense, maybe even, and actually follow Jesus' instruction. Next thing you know, Simon Peter is heaving his freshly washed nets over the side of the boat, perhaps somewhat anxious, like rubbing his hands together to prove Jesus wrong. Like, I'm going to show you there's no fish to be caught. We pick the story back up in Luke 5, 6. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. That's a lot of fish. The catch was so large, as a matter of fact, that Simon Peter had to call for help. Look at Luke 5, 7. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish, and on the verge of sinking, that is a really lot of fish. And you can just see Simon Peter and James and John, they're like whooping it up, right? They're jumping around on their boats. They're celebrating the largest catch of fish that I'm sure anyone has any recollection whatsoever of. And Jesus, he looks on, and he's enthralled by these guys' passion and their energy. But then he wants to break in, right? Jesus wants to interrupt and get their attention for just a moment. And he, you could almost hear him saying, like, hey, guys, hey, guys, you, you think that catch was something. That's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? But look at how fired up you are about netting a bunch of scaly underwater creatures. Look at how excited you are about that. Then Jesus said, would you just for a minute think grander thoughts with me? Guys, would you just imagine multiplying the celebration factor of what you just experienced by like a thousand? Not, guys, that there's anything wrong whatsoever with catching fish. It earns you a living, you could hear Jesus saying. Catching and selling fish is an honorable profession, but what if instead of netting a few dollars, you landed a few destinies? That's where the action is, Jesus says. And then we can kind of imagine Jesus' tone going from elation to one of intensity. Peter, James, and John, to this point in your life, you've spent all of your days being fishermen. But what I'm inviting you to do, starting right here and starting right now, is to become, watch this, fishers of people. You've heard this before. Fishers of people. What if instead of investing your one and only life in catching six-inch fish, measly six-inch fish, you and after like the six footers, right? Guys, Jesus says, I'm inviting you to give up everything you have, everything you are for the sake of people's souls. Come with me and you'll see what real living is all about. And it's certainly a very strange way to recruit some disciples, isn't it? But Jesus really, on the other side of it, he certainly is recruiting disciples, but he leverages it to set up this fantastic truth of small fish versus big fish, right? 
That's been the cornerstone of Jesus' ministry from the moment he first arrived on the scene all the way until right here and right now in the year 2007. Jesus has been asking all manner of people, fishermen and bankers and attorneys, entrepreneurs, stay-at-home moms, teachers, builders, every vocation imaginable, this one single probing question, are you going to give yourself entirely to the pursuit of small fish or will you risk it all by tossing your nets out there in expectant anticipation of catching the human-sized ones? And Jesus' timing with these guys is like perfect, isn't it? He helped them experience a great deal of success. That enormous catch of fish very likely represented their best business day ever. And then he makes what some have called a big fish invitation to leave the netting of the perch behind and go fishing for people from that day forward. And that big fish invitation, it set Peter and it set his friend's hair on fire for the only mission in life that is worth pursuing, helping those who are far from God to step closer to him. Call it grander vision living, if you will. And see, today, this day, right here, Jesus is still jumping into the boats of people just like you and just like me and inviting us to sell out our lives to that grander vision. There's nothing better than living for the grander vision. And when we take him up on his offer to grander vision living, some things change for us, don't they? Some things change inside of us. Number one is we see people the way that Jesus sees people. We see people the way that Jesus sees people. Rather than being irritated by people who are far from God and who behave like people who are far from God, when we take Jesus up on his invitation to live out the grander vision day in and day out, we look deep into the eyes of people, people who are all around us every day, people who are far from God, and we see them as well-rounded, fulfilled, deeply fulfilled people who are on a course toward an eternally productive life. We don't see them in the place that they are right now where things aren't going so well, where hope is waning. We see them for the place that God wants them to be and invites them to be. We see people the way that Jesus sees people. Number two, it causes us to say yes to people when we take Jesus up on his offer to grander vision living. We say yes to people. We just say Yes. That means that as we live for the grander vision, nothing ranks higher than the value of people. And Jesus modeled this for us. His convictions about loving and serving people with the heart of God himself, they're so entrenched in Christ that whenever he saw anybody trying to put a higher value on anything other than people, he would just step up and very clearly say, in the kingdom of God, nothing trumps the value of people. Nothing trumps the value of people. A number of years ago, um, uh, Dana, uh, Dana is my lovely and gracious wife, for those of you who don't know. Dana and I moved into this house shortly after we were married. We rented this cool house from a friend of ours. And we knew the neighbor over on one side of us because we were in the same line of work together. But we didn't know our other neighbors. There was a young couple who lived on the other side of us. And over the course of a few months, we got to know 
those neighbors on the other side a bit. We struck up a friendship with those guys. The gal who lived over there, the neighbor that we didn't know, she took one look at my six-foot, two-inch wife, found out that she had once been on a full-ride basketball scholarship to Creighton, and the next thing I knew was she was playing basketball on that gal's city league team. The guy, he had a city league team, too, that he led, and uh, he took one quick look at me and could sense that I was a terrible basketball player. I was thinking that maybe he had seen me at that uh, Nuggets-Pistons game shooting free throws, if you remember, yeah, remember that. And so he didn't ask me to play on his city league team, but we became friends anyway. That was all right with me. And we had known this couple for a few months when one night on the way home from that bas- a basketball game that Dana and this gal had been playing in, this gal asked Dana if she thought that maybe... She was very gentle how she inserted it into the conversation. Do you think maybe that your husband would be willing to perform our wedding ceremony that was just a handful of weeks away? I think Dana's jaw like dropped. She was very, very confused because we had literally just assumed that this was a married couple living next door to us. And it was an assumption, though, that was fueled by the fact that both of those people who lived next door to us, they had the very same last name. So we had every reason to believe that this was just a married couple. And so Dana was like, what, a wedding? Aren't you already married? No, we're not married, and we'd like your husband to perform that wedding ceremony. So Dana was like, well, I'll ask him, and he'll get back to you. So she came home and dumped all that out. We got a great laugh out of that. Like, they have the same last name already. It's bizarre. I said, of course I will perform that wedding ceremony. Of course. But I had some people, I started talking to some people in my world, kind of telling this story, like, this is really cool. This is very cool. They've invited me. We hardly know them. And this is going to be a great inroad with these guys. And I had some people very close to me in my world who recommended that I not perform that wedding ceremony. I was like, well, why? Well, because they live together, right? And they're not married, right? No. Well, they live together. You can't perform that wedding ceremony. But I said, but they live together before they're married because they don't know anything different, right? These people are far from God, and in their worldview, when you find the person that you're going to marry, what do you do? You just move in with them. You, like, buy a house and move in together, Right? These were not Bible-reading, church-attending people by any stretch. And here's what I knew. I knew that if I said no to doing that wedding, someone would do it, right? It wasn't like they were not going to get married because I said no. Somebody would marry them. They would get married. And by telling them no, I would have communicated to them that God and that Jesus and that the church was closed to them because they didn't measure up to our standards. So just a handful of weeks later, it wasn't very long at all, I did that wedding against the recommendation of those people who were very close to me at that time. And shortly after that wedding, that couple began attending the church where I served. And a couple of months after that, in a weekend worship service, a lot like this one as a matter of fact, both of them together stepped over the line of faith in Jesus. They became Christ followers. And to this day, we're still in touch with them. Just last week, Dana took several tear-filled phone calls from that gal as she was asking us to pray for her ailing dad. And they are cutting a wide swath of ministry to this day. They're hard after the kingdom of God. And so see, when we're living for the grander vision It causes us to say yes to people. Why? Because God says yes to people. We say yes because God says yes. 
When we're living for the grander vision of Jesus, number three, we have a sixth sense awareness of people. We have a sixth sense awareness of all people. It doesn't matter their spiritual condition when we come across them. When we're living out the grander vision, we look absolutely right past what our human senses incline us toward. It causes us to look past looks and material possessions, stuff like the externals. And we choose instead to focus on the reality that every single person who we ever meet, get that, every single person who we ever meet is a child of God and is utterly worthy of being redeemed by God himself. In the book of Luke, in the New Testament of the Bible, Jesus and James and John, they were en route to Jerusalem. One time they were not allowed to pass through this corner, this section of a place called Samaria. And when that happened to these guys, this ethnic pride swelled up in the two disciples who had been accompanying Jesus. That would be James and John. And in that moment of pride, ethnic pride, those two asked Jesus, if he would have them call down fire from heaven to destroy the offenders who would not let them pass through that corner of Samaria. You can almost like hear them say, let's show them who's really got the power, Jesus. Come on, let's fry them. And you can just picture Jesus like, oh my word. Right? He's like shaking his head in dismay because his disciples, they just didn't get it. They didn't get God's heart for people. See, God places a higher value on holding open the door to the kingdom of God, even for people like the Samaritans, than he does on booing the pride of a couple of offended Jews. Which means for us, as people who are living for God's grander vision, that number four, we help to hold the door to the kingdom of God open for anyone and everyone. We help to hold that door open. Another time, a group of religious leaders, these guys were called Pharisees, they found Jesus hanging out with a crowd of quite irreligious people. Why would you waste your time on these hellbound pagans? The Pharisees asked. They were like complaining to Jesus, see. They were very, very upset that Jesus would place such a high value on these unworthy heathens. And that made Jesus reply to them that much more stinging. Jesus says back, with all your book smarts and theological degrees and your precious law-abiding perfection, you just don't get the heart of God the Father, do you? You can almost see them recoiling to that accusation. See, grander vision living means that we will lean toward people every single time. All people. Not just people who look like us and think like us and dress like us and vote like us. We will lean toward people every time. All people. Why? Because the door to the kingdom of God is open to everyone and to people the world over, Jesus shouts out, access is granted, you are welcome, come on in, love and acceptance and grace are waiting for you right here inside the kingdom of God. You see, the truth is that there really is a heaven, and the truth is that there really is a hell. They are eternal places 
They were final destinations of real people who live real lives next door to us, across the street from us, two offices down from us, across the locker room from us, next to us in class. Real people who are looking around at this broken down world of ours, hoping above all hope that there really can be better days ahead. 